Welcome to Getting to Nimble. I'm Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician. And I'm Bill Smoots. I am a pastor. Join us on the first and third Tuesdays as we explore how to survive and thrive in the 21st century church. And today we're taking up our nimbleness topic in the direction of a new book. It's called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K. And normally we have our Reads of the Week and we talk about the books that we've been reading lately. But this week we're devoting the whole episode to talking about this concept of infinite games and what that means for us as church leaders. So it's kind of like one long read of the week. Basically. Okay. Basically. I'll, I'll try not to monologue though. <laughs> I'll try and be interested. <laughs> so the overarching argument of the infinite game is that, well, one, in terms of game theory, there are finite games and infinite games. Organizations are often operating as if they were part of a finite game, but uh, Simon Sinek argues uh, most of us are in organiz- organizations where we are part of an infinite game. A finite game would would be something that that has time limits and and that has rules for for how the game is played in those time limits. Uh, baseball, uh, a baseball game is the example that I've heard you use a couple of times, Sarah. Where you know we know the game is supposed to end at nine innings, uh, and and there are rules for how mm-hmm. it is organized we and all played. Have to follow the rules, and, and everybody has to to. Uh, you know, get through to that point unless you're the Astros. And, and no, that was tacky, wasn't it? There might be Astros fans listening to us. Okay. Sorry, y'all. Unless you're the Astros or the Red Sox. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, that, that we all have to play by the same set of rules, and, and those rules get us to an end point. Mm-hmm. Well, There's a while, finish line. And while baseball, you know, you can go into extra innings, it's still, there's a result uh, mm-hmm. at some point when... You can't make up the rules as you go along. You can't change the rules. You can't enter and exit the game. Once you're in the game, you're in the game, and you're following a certain predetermined set of rules. Again, you can't change the rules unless you're the Astros. Oh, well, you know. (laughs) This is perhaps where I confess that I don't know what the story is here in the Astros. Oh, so so you haven't... (laughs) So in oh, the last week, they were the ones week, that were cheating on the they signs. They were the ones cheating on the signs. Oh, and, I did and, see headlines about And that about swallowed this. both the managers in Boston and oh. New York Mets, who were both former Astros coaches or players. Oh, guys, don't do um, that. So if you're in a finite game, yeah, don't know. Yeah, and and now they Can't may get the little asterisks next to their World Series appearances and victories. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Okay, so we're going to talk about ethical fading, which is a <laughs> which is one of the problems of treating. Treating an organization as a finite game, um, major ethical problems that, that can in, uh, encourage. So we can see how how an organization could see itself as a f- being part of a finite game. We have our quarterly reports. We have our annual reports. We have our, I mean, if you're thinking in terms of business, well, we are responsible to shareholders, and we have these reports, and we have these what appear to be finish lines. We have a project, and then we ship the, pro- the we have a product, and then we ship the product, and and look, we have a finish line, and we have a finish line, and we have a finish line. But but in fact, if you view the organization as part of an infinite game, these are components of something that is, these are components, but these are not the game itself. We never defined infinite game. So an infinite it. game is something that you can never win because there is no finish line. It's something where you can choose to be part of it, you can choose to leave it. You don't have to be part of this game. Um, you can engage with people. You can make up the rules to the game. You can change the rules. You can yourself determine what the rules of this game are. We often can think of, we can think of life as a certain kind of infinite game. You can choose to engage in lots of different modes of being in your lifetime, and you don't have it. 
you do, have, of course, have a finish point, um, at least in this this earthly world. But you um, you don't have a predetermined. We know when it's over. And, and I think one of the places where we struggle as human beings with this concept of infinite games, particularly maybe it, maybe it's we struggle particularly as Americans, is this sense of this cultural sense of winners and losers. Mm -hmm. uh, we do things to win. Mm -hmm. We don't do but things to lose. But there's no winner in an and, infinite game. Right, right. You can't but win it. In an infinite game, there's no winner. Then well, why would we want to be part of something that we can't win? Um, I, because I think that's so ingrained in us. You're, you're uh, a winner or you're a loser. You're at the table. You're on the menu. Um, you know, Whatever metaphor you want to use, it's kind of hardwired that, that you've got to be a winner to be successful. And so to think in terms of an infinite game really stretches us in ways that perhaps we're unfamiliar with or, or just not comfortable with. And yet it's a really critical distinction and an important distinction. Mm -hmm. This is reminding me of how often in our careers we act as if they are finite. And we think, well, I'll be happy when I insert a finish line, insert a milestone. I'll be happy when I make partner. I'll be happy when I whatever the thing is. Survive as at if, this church more than three years? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's like, if if I succeed in this finite game, then that's, and then uh, shockingly, we're not satisfied with that. Well, why am I not satisfied when I quote unquote won? Well, you can't win. And when you treat that milestone as if it were a finish line, then you can have this kind of existential loss feeling of like, well, what, what am I even doing here? Because I don't know what my purpose was. And I thought I won, but I'm part of an infant game. I didn't actually win. I can't win. One of the things that was very unsettling to me, and I think relates to this conversation, is when I finally finished my formal education. Mm. You know, for for most of my life, up to a point in my mid to late twenties, had been okay. You go to school, you get grades, so you can go on to the next grade, mm -hmm. so you can go on to the next level of you schooling. You won this test. You and, won this right, test. Right, right, and it was test. it was yeah. all these little wins. Okay, I graduated. I won. Mm -hmm. I I survived mm -hmm. finals at the end of the semester. As opposed to I like won. I'm being educated for my whole lifetime. I'm a lifelong correct, learner. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I got my master's and got ordained and, and launched into the church. And it was like the next fall rolled around, and I was like, I didn't know what to do. There was, mm, there was yeah. no um, place for me to go compete, in a sense, mm -hmm. um, for, for grades or, or for a next degree. And, and it, a few years later, I went back for, to work on a doctor of ministry, and it was like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm back to something familiar. But then when that was finished, I knew that was it for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And it was, and I strung that out as long as I could. I think in part because I was afraid of what would happen when it was over. I wouldn't know what, where purpose was coming from mm -hmm. if I didn't have that educational goal line. If you didn't know, like, what is my next goal thing, line. my next thing, my next thing, yeah. my next, finite game that I'm going to play yeah. to win. And suddenly I was talking to my wife about, okay, now I've got to think about goals for life, not just goals for graduation or, mm -hmm. or it was, it was yeah. a very that's weird huge. time. Yeah. 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 I think that's totally relevant to this infinite finite uh, mindset in, in terms of if you're thinking of, if you're thinking of career ministry as like a subset of your life, like, well, if you treat it as a finite game, you would have kind of a profound sense of loss. Yeah. When and, and I think lots of people treat their careers as a finite mm -hmm. game, yeah. and they get to retirement and just hit an emotional wall because they don't know what else to do, or they, they, they haven't, they've been so busy playing the game, they haven't allowed themselves time to develop a life that 
has other components to it mm -hmm. uh, or develop relationships with people that, that are more than just a short-term business mm -hmm. relationship. Uh, transactional. Yes, transa very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's a big picture overview of finite and infinite games. Now we're going to dive into what that means for us in the church, and we're going to cover maybe six different areas that are brought up in this book, The Infinite Game, and think about how how this concept of an infinite game and church organization, um, how this can, uh, how we can think about it in really specific ways. And, and nimble ways, I hope, yes, too. Yes, yes. Well, I, I mean, to me, this is like when I was reading this book, I was like, oh, well, Bill and I have to talk about this because this is at heart a question about nimble. Nimble 101. It's, it's like, a, like the mindset that motivates even wanting to be nimble. Okay. Yeah, good. at least good, I, good, as good. I think of it. So the first really big one is what the author calls a just cause. And when you are part of an infinite game, when you aren't working towards that finish line, what you need to have is what he calls a just cause. It's this thing that carries you forward, that motivates you over, over the long term. There's a quote from the book about a just cause. A just cause must be greater than the products we make and the services we offer. If we articulate our cause in terms of our products, then our organization's entire existence is conditional on the relevance of those products. Any new technology could render our products, our cause, and indeed our entire company obsolete overnight. And throughout this book, he's giving business examples such as like railroads. If the just cause is providing affordable tr uh, transportation for the masses, the massive changes over the course of the railroad industry are not actually problematic because it's not about the railroad, it's about providing transportation, right? But if you think, well, my... Uh, organization's purpose is to provide railroads for people. Well, huh, you're, you know? <laughs> you're in the wrong country. Yeah, yeah, right. You're on the wrong and, continent. Um, a, a couple other really relevant things are um, publishing. You know, if you're if you're a uh, if the just cause of your book publishing business is not actually about publishing books and selling books to people, but if you think of yourself as being a uh, part of the generation and sharing of ideas, well, that's a whole different thing than selling books. And so you're you're. If you were thinking about that, you would have been able to respond much better to the changes in publishing in the last 20 years than uh, the publishing industry was. Or even, uh, say, with music. If you're thinking about being a sharer of music rather than, I'm going to sell records and tapes and CDs, wow, you'd be in a really different place today than 20 years ago. You would have been able to respond to those changes if your purpose is to share music. I know the author uh, looked at Kodak Mm, uh, many times. Yeah. Use that example. I, I like oh, that Oh, this one. is so fascinating. So he's arguing that Kodak's initial, uh, initial just cause was to provide uh, the means of photography to the average person. Um, and when the Kodak company was beginning, photography was really limited to professionals and really s serious hobbyists, right? So initially, this is about providing photography for everyone. Well, as we know, with the advent of digital photography, Kodak is now teeny tiny compared to what it used to be. And it just sells film basically to professional photographers. It's completely opposite to its original just cause because it lost that cause along the way and became a, well, we sell film. We sell cameras and we sell film. This is our business. And, and so to, to take this to the realm of church, one of the things that strikes me first is how many of our congregations don't have a clear just cause in mind. Mm -hmm. You know, we can we we will say we're disciples of Jesus Christ. We will say we're um, a localized reflection of the kingdom of God or beloved community in in more inclusive language, but we don't ever articulate that 
in, in a way that impacts how we do what we do, or, or we rarely do. We, we may say, okay, we'll, we'll have vision, we'll have mission, but those are often then reflected in goals we establish that we can achieve, wins we can make in the short term, and we don't back up far enough to say, we are you know, the, the people of God. We, we are uh, a gathering of the disciples of Jesus Christ who, who are to bring God's love to this world. We, we don't think in those big terms. Which is something that you can never achieve and which right. you can always right. be better at because this just cause isn't something that you, c- you can't achieve it and you can't say, well, I'm good enough. There's right. always always room to imagine new, imagine differently, imagine better. We imagine... can always be better disciples. Mm-hmm. The Holy yeah. Spirit is always calling us in mm-hmm. to God's future, which is an ever-evolving thing. It's, it's a constant uh, creation of newness, yes. I think. Yes. Um, one thing about this just cause that the author points out is he's saying that a just cause, this is a quote, a just cause is not the same as our why. A why comes from the past. It is an origin story. It's a statement of who we are, the sum total of our values and beliefs. A just cause is about the future. It defines where we are going. It describes the world we hope to live in and will commit to help build. Now, doesn't that sound like what a church should be doing? It, it does, but but the first part um, about the past is mm-hmm. is such a is, it's is so well, well. It's 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 where we are human as mm-hmm. humans. We we are so fearful of what we don't know um, that we'd much rather look to the past and cling to our why stories than think about um, this this unknown future. I have been thinking a lot lately about abolitionists in the United States and how. The cause of abolitionists, which I would see as a just cause, maybe you could say liberty for all people, that's something you could never achieve, but you can always work towards. That's something that most abolitionists never even began to see in their lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. And so the just cause is not something, it's not something that they could check off for the most part. Or maybe you could say like, well, we've quote unquote abolished slavery in the United States, but if you're thinking about liberty for all people, that's something we continue to strive for today, I hope. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think for us as churches, like we can, we can we can think of a thinking of like missional efforts in in the nineteenth century. Well, we have we have evangelized the people of, you know, name name the place, but that's not the same thing as as living in Christian community. So so the magazine that that many people read, the Christian Century, mm-hmm. it was so titled in the early nineteen hundreds because the the people who put that instrument together knew that the the 20th century was the century in which the world would become christian which which missionarily they would christianize the world isn't that an interesting wow i had no idea yeah in that i mean just a, it blows my mind that somebody would even think in that way but i'm i'm, I'm just like mouthing wow yeah wow the 20th century so... will be our win Oh, oh, buddy. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. that's not how that works. Kind of, kind of missed it, didn't they? So we're going to run through a couple things that I think are really um, pragmatic or um, specific about this kind of uh, kind of loose, what is an infinite game? What does it mean for a church? What is a just cause? You know, kind of like these big picture things. We're going to zoom in on a few problems, solutions, strategies. The first one... Opportunities. Yeah. Well, the first one is, is kind of a roadblock, which is that often people in our organization or who support our organization, our church, uh, don't want us to operate as part of an infinite game. They want to be part of a finite game. And so in the business world, that could be people who are like, well, um, if you don't meet your annual, annual 
projected whatever, you got to lay people off, which is a, a, you know, maybe you do have to lay people off eventually, but, you know, that's a finite measure for Correct. an infinite thing, right? And that's I think a, That's a loss often. And I think we often in churches, we've talked about this before, we often function as if, um, I'm, I'm thinking of council members, and we have our oh, terms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, in, in a lot of churches, there are three-year officer terms, um, and, and the idea is it can't fail on my watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. whether it's three years or you can have two three-year terms for a total mm-hmm. of six years, as long as things don't fail in that short period of time, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And and what we end up doing is managing with that short-term focus rather than leading uh, mm-hmm. when we've got an infinite yeah. purpose mm-hmm. or focus in mind. Yeah. And I think we on the church staff end can also run into this, this problem because none of us are, well, I'm sure there's someone here who's like, well, I've been in the same church for 30 years. But by and large, most of us do not work in the same church for our entire careers. And, you know, say you're going to be at a church for five years, for 10 years. Say you're an interim pastor, <laughs> Bill Smoots. Who's moving uh, on after two. Yeah, yeah, right? You, We have we have one Sunday left here. Yep. Um, They're all celebrating. There's, well, there's, there is going to be cake. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's really easy to just think, well, I... I'm good at what I do, and that's good enough. Yeah. I I know how to. I mean, I I'm speaking speaking for the organists in the crowd because I'm an organist and I know we have a reputation. Well, I know how to do this thing, and I got good at it, and I got a bachelor's degree in it, and this is what I'm going to do. I, I've won this game, and I'm going to keep. Yeah. 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 Um, and pastors can do that too. Well, oh. I know how to preach a sermon, and I know how to do pastoral care, and so that's good enough. And and I'm never going to write another sermon after I turn sixty because I've written so many over the last mm-hmm. however many years that. You know, I can just kind of coast into the finish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, because then I will have won. I will have hit retirement. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's that's scary to me. So related to this um, kind of external and maybe internal pressure to be part of a finite game is this whole problem of valuing people. And when you are treating the organization as being part of a finite game, it's really tempting to devalue people because, well, people are not money. People are, maybe people are the butts in the seat on Sunday morning, but, you know, having a certain number of people in the in the pew is not valuing people, right? That's that's quantifying right. them. That's that's the... Right. Yeah, it, it's it's not saying this is this is. I'm, a I'm not child interested of God. in who you are as a child of God or, or not interested in your spiritual journey as part of um, our larger congregational spiritual journey. I'm, I'm interested that you're you're here that you bring your children hopefully multiples of them um to fill mm-hmm. our sunday school mm-hmm. and that you put money in the plate mm-hmm. um, none of this sounds like valuing people and it certainly doesn't sound like valuing those children in the very long term of their spiritual growth correct right because we're going to hope for 80 or 90 years for in the, the long term yeah. of their spiritual growth mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah which is spiritual health being a disciple of yeah. jesus is not a game to the, the that has a it's it's not a game for starters, but it's not something you win. It's not mm-hmm. a competition. Mm-hmm. It, it's a life. I think I think uh, in the sense of de- defining this infinite game, I think that you could say it's an infinite game, not in the sense of like it, it's an infinite uh, game, you know, but but yeah. it's 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 a <clears throat> lifetime mm-hmm. of of commitment and striving yes. and yes, learning yes, yes. and struggling. Um, it's it's not just a okay. I said this four part prayer. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got Jesus in my heart, so it doesn't make any difference what I do now because. I'll be forgiven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that simple. Yeah. Mm. Another um, difficult area, if you're thinking about your organization in finite terms, is uh, what what Simon Sinek calls uh, ethical fading. And he says that ethical fading is a condition in a culture that allows people to act in unethical ways in order to advance their own interests, 
often at the expense of others while falsely believing that they have not compromised their own moral principles. And he's arguing that if you're in a place that focuses on those finish line kinds of things, we shipped the product, we made the quarterly report, we um, we increased our monthly attendance, we whatever, we checked the boxes. Um, it puts, he says, it puts intense pressure on people to cut corners, bend rules, and make other questionable decisions in order to hit the targets set for them. And, and I know this is, is a, a, a cheap, easy example in some ways, but here we are in January of 2020 in the midst of an impeachment, and, and we're watching a lot of folks making a judgment on whether they can get reelected versus what's right. best or yeah. right for the larger whole, in this mm -hmm. case, our yeah. country. You know, they're, they're in, and, uh, I yeah. think I, I have seen this um, uh, I often. I want to go down that road. <laughs> yeah, that's a dangerous one. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I'm thinking actually in churches, um, we've seen this in the case of the Catholic Church, but also in evangelical churches. My background is evangelical. Of churches that say it hurts us to have sexual abuse, abuse revealed, so we're not going to bring that into the light. We're going to hide it. Oh. We're going to um, call it adultery when it is statutory rape. We're going to um, we're going to make this disappear, right? That is a finite yes. solution to, uh, yes. you know, and, and it's extremely unethical. It is wrong. But it's, it can be really tempting if your thought is like, well, we just have to pre preserve this church. We have to, um, and in my evangelical background, it would have been framed as like, well, we can't, um, you know, bring down the cause of Christ. This might drive people away from the Lord. Um, well, I, we'll I think God is much that bigger than... we on or, yeah. or consign that mm -hmm. family or that individual mm -hmm. to a lifetime of mm -hmm. mental health challenges yeah. Uh, yeah. for, for the, the cause of mm -hmm. our congregation. In, in my, in my yeah. background, it would have been around of like, well, she asked for it and, you know, she was a consensual partner in this because oh. we don't believe in statutory rape. Oh. Um, just in, incredible, incredible um, perpetrated in this idea of like, well, we have to preserve the institution. We have to preserve our... Our, our little church here. And, and, and the same thing, I think, with money. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know a lot of churches that, you know, somebody's embezzled money or a pastor mm. has spent money uh, unethically or illegally, and it's easier, the congregation believes, just to hush it up and move that person on than uh, to do anything about mm -hmm. it. This, this can also happen in terms of... Um, you know, if you have a couple um, donors who really want to wield control in the congregation, you know, they can do that. And, and um, it, it can just be a really tricky thing to evaluate, like, what what's an ethical position? What's a what's a big picture, long-term um, position, knowing that's, that sometimes, um, sometimes that's not always clear. But you don't want to fall into this trap of ethical fading, which is like, oh, well, you know, as long as we're meeting our, our annual goals, we're fine. And, and that's the priority. That's not the priority. Being a disciple of Jesus is is full of ethical challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, choosing for people rather than against them. Choosing um, maybe against your own self interest, uh, so so that others have resources they need to live to survive. Those. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just it's a constant uh, ethical choosing and. and and if we're playing the short-term just-to-win piece, we can just fall down some black holes, mm -hmm. I think, in as, as individual people of faith, but certainly as a community. Sorry. I'm getting preachy. <laughs> well, you are a preacher. Uh, yeah. um, some think so. Let's, let's talk about two more areas. Uh, the first one is this idea of a worthy rival. 
Uh, we in churches can often identify the other church in our town that we would see as our competitor. And we think, well, what can we, they're probably a little bit bigger than we are. They're probably a little bit fancier and they have better facilities. And oh, and they you know? have young people. Yeah, they, they have they have children. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I heard their Sunday school program is thriving. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's really, really tempting to think of them as competition because, well, you know, if people don't go there, you know, they, they might come here. And we, we think of this as like this kind of a, a what's it, zero sum? Yeah. I'm, I'm, their their gain is our loss. We think of yeah. it as their their gain is our loss, and our gain is their loss, and we're in competition. And and if we could just make ourselves more like them, mm-hmm. then then people mm-hmm. won't leave, or people will come here. Mm-hmm. Simon Sinek uh, argues that we should reframe this as worthy rival, which is to say that we are in this together. This is an infinite game. None of us are going to win. We are rather, in a way, collaborators, and we learn from each other, and we can use our what we might have initially thought of as competitors, we can, by thinking of them as worthy rivals, learn from them and grow from them and not get complacent because it's very tempting to go like, well, our, our music program is good enough. Well, my preaching is good enough. My, And you know, it, you have that feeling sometimes where like someone is clearly more skilled at something than you are and you're like, I, I just want to ignore the fact that they're more skilled at whatever the thing is that I want to be skilled at. Well, you can reframe that as thinking, well, this is my worthy rival. I want to learn from them and, and learn from that and, and become better as an organization, as, as church leaders, become better by um, placing ourselves in that kind of, a, kind of relationship with, with the worthy rival. I so appreciate this language. And, and mm-hmm. where, what I'm thinking about is my seminary education, where we were basically trained to go out and be lone wolves. Uh, yeah. you, 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 especially in a Presbyterian world. Oh yeah, and you, you know, you are pastor of, of this church, and and um, you don't think collaboratively, and you don't look uh, for an ability to work with other churches, certainly other Presbyterian churches, let alone other denominations. Mm-hmm. And and then we wonder why pastors feel isolated, um, why why they fall into bad habits because of that isolation. It just it just cascades. Whereas if we had been invited to think about each other as as worthy rivals, um, mm-hmm. even even instead of competing for grades in seminary classes, it Hate might bell curves. it terrible, might make a difference in in how we then went out and provided leadership to individual churches mm-hmm. and yeah. and to groups of churches or or mm-hmm. larger bodies of uh, you know community of churches and you can imagine how churches who think of themselves as being part of an infinite game and think of each other as worthy rivals you could see how for churches who are eventually going to close and we know it's going to happen you could see how how that closure can be really different if you are in that worthy rival relationship with other churches and maybe you're actually going to be able to be part of the church together rather than just being like nope we're staying on our own until yeah. Until the denomination yeah. says we have to close, right? It's a different different way of being in the world, being in your neighborhood. Many years ago, I served a church uh, where two where where an existing congregation had had welcomed another congregation to merge into it, and, and while nobody used the win lose language, it was really there. the The church mm. that that had been merged in, or the the congregation, the existing congregation that had been merged into really felt like they were the winners and and that the other church you know those were the losers who couldn't keep their church together and had to come join oh. in with us and i was there 20 years after the merger wow and and that kind of language oh, was still going on and and it took i was there seven seven and a half years and and was able to beat most of that 
language attitude out over that time. Mm -hmm. um, but it was amazing to me the tenacity of that. We won. That that sense of, of mm -hmm. we won and or or more that you lost because you couldn't keep your church. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So here's the last one, which I think is in a way the most important next to the just cause, which is um, what Simon Sinek refers to as existential flexibility. And it is like to go back to that railroad or that Kodak story. Um, it's the ability to transform based on your just cause, even when that means radical transformation. Um, so uh, he, uh, he says that an infinite minded leader does not simply want to build a company that can weather change, but one that can be transformed by change. So if you're thinking about that railroad example, well, the railroads did not were not able to transform because they weren't thinking about a big picture. Uh, we're going to um, provide transportation for the masses, basically, but rather we own the railroads. That that doesn't make room for transformation. And I think for us in churches, this is this is to me maybe the biggest thing here because we are in the surviving and thriving in the 21st century. Oh my goodness, we are in the midst of huge changes in the churches. Huge change in the church, which is maybe why like hearing about the Christian century makes me laugh so much because it's like, wow, you could not see that change coming. But I feel like we are in the midst of the change right now. We are in the midst of the transformation. What a thought. A church transformed by change. Um, you know, and I, we have been. But we, it's more we like have new been, churches but, have sprung up. But right. We, 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 we have can't. been because churches die and, and new ones mm -hmm. come along. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my, my favorite Presbyterian joke of how many... Presbyterian says it take to change a light bulb, and and the response is change, <laughs> um, and and I think that's kind of where a lot of churches start with the idea of change. It just terrifies them, and they're going to do everything they can to mm -hmm. avoid that. And and yet, this goes right to the heart of of what we're trying to talk about, of, of the importance of nimbleness, mm -hmm. of, of being open Calling to the, the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit and yeah. where, and, and, and those things translate into change. And more than change, I think transformation is part of this. The Holy mm. Spirit doesn't just like tweak us. The no. Holy Spirit transforms us. Yes. Yes, and 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 it's a it's it's a internal to external mm -hmm. transformation. Mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a complete and not just thing. us as individuals, but us but us as, as a church. corporate body, us mm -hmm. as a church, the local church, the global and, church. Yeah, and and I watch these days. I'm watching a lot of churches um, fight against that transformation that's going on, mm -hmm. um, and and certainly that's that's why I'm have interim churches to go to mm -hmm. um, yeah. be, because there's a lot of angst and struggle and just plain old nastiness and fighting around this transformation uh, because people are, you know, trying to put the brakes on, trying to, to avoid transformation in any way, shape they can, but it's coming. And, and um, if, if we could broaden our perspectives, again, from finite to infinite, I think we might um, experience church in an amazing new way and, and um, would, would be, you know, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us as individuals and as a community in ways that would probably blow our minds mm -hmm. and excite the heck out of us faithfully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Concept. What a concept, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking about The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And I will put a link to the book in the show notes. It's really well written, like not just these good ideas, but also um, sometimes I read business-focused books and I'm like, oh God, you don't know how to write. Um, he knows how to write. It's a really well-written book. Um, definitely worth the time. There's a lot more in it than we, we just kind of scratched the surface. There's a lot in there for us church leaders to learn from. Good. 
Good. And and I, I appreciate that you brought this to us because I think often church leaders look at, at business and say, that's not us. Mm, yeah, so. yeah. But And he, he uses the language of business throughout um, a little bit of nonprofit, but it's so, so relevant to what we're doing. And, and, and while we are not a business as a mm-hmm. church, there are many aspects of churches that are business-like mm-hmm. and need to be um, operated in as, as a business would be. Mm-hmm. We need to pay attention yeah. to where those are. So He has a whole section on there on ethical capitalism. Woo. Pretty interesting. Okay. <laughs> There's more to read. I'm looking forward to this. Well, that is it for this week's installment of Getting to Nimble. Uh, look for new episodes on the first and third Tuesdays of each month. You can find the show notes at sarah-ariza.com. We are so glad that you have been with us today. And if you're enjoying the show, I hope that uh, you will share it with uh, ministry buddies and other friends and and, and congregants and, and to to the ends of the universe. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm shooting big, you know. You know but we're an infinite big. we're yes. an infinite podcast. So so you know we need to this is, go this after is true. infinite there is no possibilities. Line with the podcast. That's true. right. So I'm Sarah Bariza. and I'm Bill Smoots. Until next time, keep it nimble.